0: 71 people up uh, doing uh, this retreat at uh, the top of the hill. At this moment, I think our population is 71 retreatants. Uh, Some of them will go home this Friday having completed four weeks of practice. Some of them will stay on either for two more weeks and most of them staying on for, uh, people staying on, mostly staying on for two months. a long time. So that's a probably a good way to introduce the topic of spiritual urgency. It's just been on my mind the last several days. I've been thinking about how to frame it because different things have happened. And I thought, well, if I wanted to talk about this and this and this, what would I talk about it? What would be the, uh, what would be the gathering place? What would be the point of reference? One of the things that we'll do uh, at the end of this week with the group that's leaving and going back into the world is we'll spend some time in uh, integration and having people talk to each other. These folks haven't talked to anybody except their teachers for a month, so um, they have to work up to it a little bit. It's a, a little overwhelming. They've had so minimal stimuli, it's very quiet up there. Um, it's a very simple schedule. We teach every night, and they every other day have a 15-minute interview with one of the teachers. But otherwise, it's a very simple schedule. You don't need a watch. If the bell rings and you're sitting, it's probably a walking period. And if the bell rings and you're walking, it's probably time to sit, except a few times a day when it's time to eat, and you usually know that. <laughs> a very simple schedule. Um, it's very pleasant in terms of the not impinging of outside world considerations except that one brings one's mind to the retreat and so the outside world comes in in the form of uh, Memories and reflections and recriminations and worries and projections and rehearsings and, But after a while in fact when people stay there Day after day after day it calms down a little bit Just because it's like watching old movies and by and by you've watched enough of them that We've uh, watched the same one so many times you really can't engage so much And an interesting thing happened at one point there's, a, uh, there's an, uh, a piece of furniture in the back of the room with a, um, a lovely statue of Kuan Yin on it, a little Kuan Yin on it. And sometime in the last few years, I don't know exactly when, uh, and I don't know exactly why, and I don't know exactly who said to do this, but people began to bring uh, leave photos of people who I presume are in their family either a photo or what looks like uh, an object that they would have on their home altar, if they had a home altar, on that back piece of furniture. It's not designated as an altar. But people began to leave um, baby pictures or pictures of folk, elderly sometimes. Not elderly, you don't know who they are. And all you know as you go by that, because it gets more and more crowded now. Every other person is leaving stuff. And you don't know whose thing, who, what thing on that altar belongs to what person there. But something is significant to somebody there, each of those things. You don't know in what way. You don't know whether that person is still living or not living, or it's because they're not living that their photo is there. So in some ways it's quite touching. And I think it must be meaningful to people because I see even over the course of this retreat it's that more and more things are showing up there. And by and by what happened is that people began to leave little written notes with supplications. Would you please uh, pray for my brother-in-law who's having open heart surgery tomorrow morning in the name of the brother-in-law. And you don't know who left that either. and. No one said do that, but I'm really sensitive to the fact that there must be in each of us some religious, some spiritual impulse to say, this is the burden of my heart, share it with me, even though we haven't spoken about that. And then one day, uh, two weeks ago, I think because there were some folks who, came into the retreat at the two-week point. You can't just come and go, but some folks joined at the two-week point. Every two weeks is a crossover day. Some people leave, some people come. And someone must have, I, I didn't see it, but someone told me that, put some notice on that same altar about the, the bombing in Iraq and uh, asking for people's thoughts and prayers about that. And there were a number of people who came into interviews and said, I'm terribly upset about what's happening there. And a few people who said, and I thought about it a lot, I wish somebody wouldn't have put that up there. That's an outside communication. I didn't have to know about it. And so I thought about it a lot. Um, In fact, I wished that it hadn't been put up there. But I didn't take it off either, because it was meaningful to somebody who put it up. And uh, also because we have such an extreme ethos of not moving anything that belongs to somebody else. And that little note belongs to somebody. And so I don't feel comfortable about moving it. And if I moved it, it would be a message to that person that in some way they had offended. And I don't want to do that either. So that having happened, it's there. And, but I've thought about it a lot since then, about is it the right or the wrong thing to protect the people who are there from knowing what's happening in the world. And if so I were on a debate society, I could do it both ways. On the one hand, we provide a pre- completely protected environment up there. We don't tell people what's going on outside, not with the hope, with the intention that if their mind can settle down a little bit, they will be able to see more and more clearly the roots of suffering in their own experience. Uh, more the more the less complex their experience is, the more clearly those roots of the cause of suffering and the end of suffering will be displayed. The more clearly. Uh, they'll be able to discover the most wholesome and skillful response. Also, the more balance, the more equanimity there will be in their system in general. I think we take two things away from contemplative practice, especially retreat practice. One is more insight, and one really is more equanimity just through the experience of resting the mind and the heart for a while, so that we then can go back into our lives and in the world and know what's happening, not only in Iraq, but all over the place. I think to myself sometimes about um, uh, the notion that we want to be able to see clearly as widely as we can, what's the truth of human experience, not just our own, and think about what that would mean, really, to see how many wars there are happening in the world right now. Or that 35,000 children under the age of five will die in the world today of starvation and diseases that they didn't have to die of. We have enough food in the world to share and enough medical awareness to have vaccinated and to have done the right things so that that doesn't have to happen. The equivalent of... um, 35 Jumbo Jets, 100 Jumbo Jets falling out of the sky every day, and uh, imagine if that were on the newspapers. I mean, we would have tremendous coverage. CNN would, I mean, the 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 networks would be beside themselves. One airplane falls down, but this would be a hundred airplanes falling down full of children every day. How would people's hearts be stirred to share if we covered that as a news story? Could people bear it? Maybe that's what it would need to turn the world around. What can minds bear? what will they do? seems to me is that that awareness of uh, the the ways in which uh, greed and don't know whether greed and anger are so much different from each other. You know, we always name them as greed, hatred, and delusion, the three roots of suffering. <clears throat> Think about it. The impulse to meet one's own desire makes us angry at the people who want to stand and that we feel are standing in the way of us meeting our own needs. And there's a certain amount of confusion that really underlies both greed and anger, that there's a way of taking care of oneself that is in the end more satisfactory than taking care of everyone. And We don't live separate in the world. What's the fundamental spiritual question that we're asking? And what contributes to the urgency in each of us that we find a spiritual path that wakes us up. Three people, there have been three uh, jokes or cartoons that have come up in this retreat. People in their uh, dharma talks tend to uh, sometimes lighten it up a little bit with a cartoon or a joke. So one of uh, the cartoons that someone told, you really have to tell it, you hold it up, but who can see it at such a distance and so it's like in the back. But they hold up a cartoon and they explain. So one of them is um, uh, four, um, four frames and has a kind of a proto-lizard um, a tadpole type thing just sticking its head out of the water about to emerge onto the land. Clearly, emerging from amphibian life, and it's got a thought bubble over its head, and it says, um, um, eat, survive, procreate. <laughs> and it's got up on the land in the next box a dinosaur marching around, and it's got a thought bubble, and it says, eat, survive, procreate. further up on the beach, it's got a monkey swinging around in the palm trees. Thought bubble, eat, survive, procreate. A little further up on the beach, it's got a human being walking along. Thought bubble, looking up, what's it about? (laughs) So it's really interesting. I mean I think about, every time I think about that I think, is that good or not good? <laughs> you know when you think about we are wired not so different from all those other things. All those gene studies that are coming out now, they're so amazing. We're a half a gene away from a fruit fly or something like that. But it seems to be like a, it's a, it's a very important half a gene. <laughs> So someone else told the Calvin and Hobbes um, in first frame. I guess it's Calvin, isn't it, who says, I'm happy. Second frame. But I'm not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame. So now I'm depressed. (laughs) And the fourth frame is. Should have never started thinking. <laughs> 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 so I'll tell you one more. This is a Jules Pfeiffer. You may have seen it. It's fairly recent, and it was um, right after the publication of a of a a psychology book, a reputable psychology book, talking about um, um, challenging the notion of the um, um, nuclear family being as critical in character formation as uh, one's culture, as we thought it was, and that perhaps the culture, specifically one's peer group, being equally, if not more, the shaper of character. So here is someone um, lying on an analyst's couch and saying all these years I thought it was my mother. All these years I have ranted and carried on about my mother. How is my mother's fault that I'm the way that I am? I've banged pillows, I've shouted, I've cried, I've vilified, thought it was my mother. Now I find out that it's peer groups that made me the way I am. It wasn't my mother was Freddie Abramowitz. (laughs) I'm very touched by that, because again, not only do we think, but we think because we try to figure out, we're always trying to figure out, I think, how did I get this way? And mostly it's, how did I get to be uncomfortable? Even that last, especially that last one. How did I get to be uncomfortable with the notion that if I figure out how I got to be uncomfortable I'll suddenly be comfortable. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'll just be uncomfortable and know why. You know that it's a very major challenge to uh, psychotherapy, the idea that that insight makes you better. Insight makes you more knowledgeable but maybe uh, it's, a, it's a very big question in my mind, whether, it, whether there is such a thing as genuine insight and whether it makes you feel better. I've um, been particularly thinking about it um, because I've been thinking about views and attachment to views and things that we can see as a view and things that we can't see as a view that we take as a truth, not as a view. For instance, I have a certain political opinion, or I have always had a certain kind of political orientation, because I can see that as a view. Uh, This this particular political orientation, which I didn't have as a child, which I developed as an adult, is based on my understanding that X, Y, and Z, but I see that as a view, and every once in a while, uh, I'm actually interested in this where I read someone else's view and it's very well put and it challenges my view. I think to myself hmm you know and I can feel that the wheels are a little challenged you know we don't feel like having a new view but it you know it's difficult. One of the stories that I love to tell while you laugh I'll tell you the story because it's very extremely hard to have a new view uh, I'll tell it the shortest that I can but I've watched those wheels turning in two of my grandchildren when I watched a sunrise with them a few years ago it was very early morning they were at my house and the Sun had not yet come up and we were standing at the window and with me are at were at that time a four-year-old and a six and a half year old first cousins and Grace didn't say R oh, as well she said them as W's and she said in a very pont- pontificating, stentorious voice, she was sure of herself. She said, the sun is getting weddy to wise. <laughs> <laughs> and Eric, from his six-and-a-half-year-old wisdom, said, sun doesn't go anywhere Grace. The so sun stays just where it is. The earth goes round and round <laughs> and round. So the, first of all, I thought that was... Remarkable, I'm his grandmother after all, so <laughs> I, I said, Eric, it's remarkable that you know that. Did you figure that yourself or did you learn that in school? And he said, I figured it out all myself, which I, I'm not so sure. But anyway, <laughs> I watched Grace look at the sun and look at Eric, look at the sun and look at Eric, and I could see her little wheels turning around that, because on the one hand, it sure looks like the sun is rising. On the other hand, Eric is a venerable sage to uh, <laughs> Grace at that point, and she loves him. And uh, she has to struggle between a view that she had, that she might let go now, in favor of a view offered by the venerable sage, her cousin Eric. Uh, And I I was also worried that Grace would feel put down because here she announced this with such confidence. And her cousin Eric, whom she loves, dismissed it in a minute. It's not how it happens, Grace. It's this other way. And I didn't want her to feel badly. But I think she didn't. Um, I think that that little story has stayed with me. Because it so encapsulates my sense of the ability to change an opinion being based on feeling safe. Uh, when we are cha- when our opinion is challenged, in a sense, we are challenged and uh, we get alarmed. it kind of challenge to our ego, our ego and my opinion are what holds me up. I know what's true. But here comes someone who I love, who tells me it's otherwise, and I feel loved. I can take the risk of letting go of that view, having a new view. So we'll go on to what makes us, as we go through our lives, around this issue of spirituality, able to let go of some views, take other views. What's the view that we need to make us feel comfortable? Um, What's this whole thing of a spiritual dimension anyway? Well, I know what I was, well, the point that I was going to make and didn't quite make a difference between a, a view, recognizing a view, like a political view, and then being able to change it, and not recognizing a view, thinking of it as a truth. I think that happens to me sometimes, perhaps to you, in the area of um, what we understand about psychodynamics. I think when psychologists in the year 2050 look back at the twentieth century, they will wonder a lot about the 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 uh, psychological premise that was the primary premise of a hundred years. So the psychodynamic premise, your mother this, your father this, you were affected by that, that's how come this. You remember the line in West Side story, uh uh, dear Officer Crumkey, I'm very upset. I never had the love that every child ought to get, and then go on and on about that's why I'm so bad. Maybe, you know, there's a new book out called Mean Genes. It's a very interesting book about genetic studies about uh, biological components of behavior. Mean genes. It's interesting. We have grown up in a whole era. Certainly, I did. Of when people ask you, you met somebody and you got to know them a little bit and then they said, well, you know, how did you get to be that way, whatever it is. We had a whole story about that. Well, my mother this and my father this and my older brother always and therefore da-da-da. And we took that to be gospel. That was not, that was just our truth. That wasn't our opinion of why we were the way we are. That's the reason. I'm not so sure that my fears and my phobias and my uh, my different things that make me me uh both pleasant and unpleasant from my family or the fact that i was born on the you know in leo with libra rising or uh, <laughs> hmm? <laughs> <laughs> that one seemed better howard <laughs> it's, as good as the other one. it's as good as the other one or um what else? Uh, what else could it be? What's another formulation, a or a combination, or any other formulation, or, or who I was in a past <laughs> life, or the <laughs> a just the proximal life, or that it's all karma? It's all karma anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I got this mother and father is also, but uh, but you know whether or not I merited it, or everyone merited it, or it's the fruit of collective karma, or all of the above. I think Ira Progoff showed that if you rewrite your autobiography every five years, it changes. Oh, yeah. So, what you think happens is always about the present moment experience. <laughs> Howard is bringing up that Ira Progoff, who was a Jungian psychologist who taught a form of journal keeping, journaling your own life, Notice that uh, brought out, and I, yeah, I studied with him, in fact, I remember this, at, at, at intervals, even closer than every five years. If you rewrite what you think are the 10 pivotal points of your life charting the course of your life that got you from birth to here it's a different journey anytime you look at it you know and the people who talk to me about their lives uh, somebody recently said you know it's interesting my brother grew up in a different house than i did yeah? uh, so it's all subjective there's nobody there so let's bring it around to, what is it really that we're doing with spiritual journey? been interested, uh, recently people are talking anyway about what is spirituality? For a long time we said, oh, I have, I'm on a spiritual path. Other people said, good. But, you know, but <laughs> they didn't say why, or where is it going, or what do you do on that path, and towards what end, what's the function of it? Mm-hmm. I've been reading the last few days uh, a book called uh, Searching for your soul. Writers of many faiths share their personal stories of spiritual discovery, and it's quite wonderful. I've been, you know, reading in and out different people. The uh, I'll just tell you two two that really struck me because they uh, brought up for me different answers to uh, what is it that we're doing in our spiritual practice, and they might uh, it might be that we come to think of uh, uh, that we're all doing a spiritual practice for a different reason. I'm hopeful that I'll tell you these two, and then we'll talk a little bit amongst us. The author who put together this book is Catherine Kurz, and uh, her introduction to the book tells her own story. And uh, it's very touching to me. She uh, begins her story about talking about... uh, um, praying in an Anglican church in New York City and waiting for uh, the ceremony that's about to begin in which she'll be baptized as an Anglican. And she was uh, born a Jew. And uh, tells her whole story about how she was moved to the prayer and to this particular church and such an affinity for this kind of practice. It's very touching a real connection about her baptism, about her years of practice as an Anglican, about her study in, uh, in England, about um, uh, graduate degrees in, in religion and theology, and uh, about her being turned down for ordination as an Anglican priest, and about eventually how it came to pass quite magically, that she found herself re-emerging in her life as a Jew. That's not in any sense uh, told of uh, a sense of finally I came home or don't have that feeling about the the piece. What moves me the most about the piece, because it could have been anything, she could have started as an Anglican and converted to Judaism and come back as an Anglican. She It doesn't matter, you could mix and match all those parts. But that there was something in her all the time that was looking for a viable means of religious expression in a community. What is it that in us is looking for a viable, for her, in a community means of religious expression? I don't know whether everybody, anybody's spiritual community has... A, a, a different message than kindness and compassion and justice and peace on earth. Everybody's got the same message, you know. Uh, I have pretty much a sense, uh, don't you, that we could do our trip anywhere, really? Um, In any group, had we been born into a culture that had another religious expression, if it was somehow based in kindness and compassion, kinds of things that are fundamental, to what the Buddha taught, we could do it anywhere. I like to be in other people's churches. You know, they they all seem lovely to me. Everybody's got beautiful rituals. So I thought to myself, her quest was to find a community with viable that was a viable one for her to feel at home and comfortable in religious and prayerful expression. Okay. Is that what the spiritual urgency is? And if the urgency, my sense, would be not to find a community, but to meet some certain need. It's the need to feel not separate from community or not separate from anything. Then I read the next piece in the book uh, by um, a woman named Nancy Mears. I should look in the back and tell you who she is. It tells you who each of these folks is uh, maybe it doesn't? All the better. They're all very, they're all very gifted writers, as well as able to tell their story with such candor. Um, Nancy Mayers is a. Uh, she says. Uh, uh, from her proper New England Protestant upbringing to her adult conversion to the oxymoron—it's her, her qu- oxymoron—in quotes of being a Roman Catholic feminist. Uh, <laughs> Nancy Maris writes of the st- with startling candor about that God's daily presence in her life in the midst of extreme circumstances. Maris uses the um, often difficult text of her life her husband's cancer, their mutual infidelities, her own multiple sclerosis and depression as a spiritual context within which to find God again and again, even in the midst of betrayal. Well, that said it much better than I could, but that's what it's about. And uh, it's a very uh, wonderfully written, but difficult to read uh, story of the pain in these people's lives and this person's life, and in the end, the somewhat, for me, triumphal end of it, because my sense of it in the end, uh, her husband develops a, a cancer, which s- seems quite life-threatening. And In the end, his question to her in the beginning of this, uh, the very first line of this piece is, uh, you will love me, he asks, and then goes on to tell her, uh, this is after he's been diagnosed with his cancer about his many years of infidelity and on and on the whole piece develops their whole background together, often tremendously difficult. but in the end, what she takes what she talks about as being really what she is uh, called to do or what she discovers she can do which she sees as part of her religious practice is that she can love him uh, it's the last paragraph. Maybe it'll make sense to you. Um. Hmm. Hmm. Talking about grace. Forgiveness does not, whatever the aphorisms say, entail forgetfulness. Never mind the sheer impossibility of forgetting that your husband has just told you he's had an affair, a strenuous version of that childhood game in which you try on a dare not to think about a three-legged green cat licking persimmon marmalade from the tip of its tail. You get that? Like, you know, your husband tells you, I've had this long affair, but don't think about it. You know, it's about as impossible as that childhood game. In the next three minutes, at all costs, don't think about elephants. You know, the. <laughs> Mind what matters. Never mind he said, Never mind that you can't do that. Mind what matters, his presence here for now. Love is not love, forgiveness is not forgiveness, that effaces the beloved's lineaments by letting him drift indistinct through the lives of those who claim him. That way lies lethargy, which is the death of love. I'm not married to Saint George, after all. I'm married to a man who is, among other things, neither more or less remarkable. An adulterer, I must remember him though whole. So I read that as just a challenge, that the spiritual path is really a challenge to can we, notwithstanding everything, continue to love? So I thought about Catherine Kurz's piece, the first one about, is the spiritual path to find a place where we can feel connected? in a way that has meaning. That's one way of saying it. These are not mutually exclusive. The second one I read, uh, the spiritual path being a way to, notwithstanding everything, continue to have the capacity to love. I thought of one more that um, I didn't have a story from here to put, but I thought about, maybe it'll come to me when I tell it to you or you'll tell me when. I think the other thing we want very much to 2 things, we want very much to feel, not afraid and not ashamed. Mm -hmm. I think those are the big things that we feel. Afraid I can understand more easily than ashamed, and ashamed I know pretty well. Afraid because, I think that going back to those cartoons of the reptiles coming out of the ocean and you know the development up up into the development of human beings I think the the either the gift or the problem of being a human being I think the gift is that we have a reflexive mind we can think back and forward uh, we can uh, be abstract about our lives we can we know the possibility of death we know that life is finite. I think about that sometimes. I think about the cows, think about how old they are. Or, um, do they think about the, the calf that they've had that's been separated from them? On the day of the separation, um, which comes later this spring, I live next to uh, um, a very large farm, and there's a um, a day in the spring where they separate the calves from the cows. And there's tremendous hollering happening all night by the cows. And it's tremendously sad. It just touches me enormously. And then after a day, the hollering stops. And I I think to myself, are they hollering because they're uncomfortable? Or are they hollering because they know their child is gone? And... Did they like this child better than last year's child, or uh, will they remember this child in a week, or... Um, I think about it, I don't know. But one of the things about reflexive minds is we do remember, and um, and grieve, and yearn. Um, you know, I think about it now, I think we write poetry too, and cows don't do that, you know. Maybe those are one of the ways in which we talk about the experiences of the heart, not better or worse than cows, but different. But also because we're human beings and we can look forward and back, we have this sense of the preciousness of time, the importance of relationship. And we have a sense of uniqueness. And sometimes I think that sense of uniqueness sense of uniqueness, I think, is wonderful. The sense of separateness that comes with it, I think, is maybe the source of feeling frightened. I think there's something about the experience often available in meditation where the sense of a separate self just disappears. It's one of the strangest things when you teach uh, the insights of the Buddha to people for the first time, and you talk about um, impermanence, they get it. You know, yesterday isn't going to happen again. Uh, the where are we? We're in we're in February, so the Super Bowl already happened for two thousand and one. It's gone into the same void as the sa- Civil War. It's just a <laughs> neuron in the mind. It's a memory bank. We get impermanence. Uh, And we get suffering, you know, we get that when we cling to things that want them to be a way that they aren't or can't be, that there is suffering in the mind. We get that also. But it's so hard to get this uh, anatta insight, no one there. It certainly feels like there's someone in there who is looking out of these eyes or listening to these ears. And as soon as we do that, which I think is a trick of parallax, you know, because there is seeing, we... um, uh, infer a seer, and there is hearing, and we infer a hearer, and there is thinking, so we infer a thinker. The well, Mark Epstein has done such a good job of writing thoughts without a thinker, but nevertheless we keep imagining that there is some one continuing Sylvia or anyone in each of us that's the owner of this experience, and uh, we feel uh, We identify that owner with this body and I think when we think about dying particularly and we understand that this body is only viable for a certain length of time, we imagine with alarm that the Sylvia or whoever who's the owner of this body will die. Uh, I think that's part of the reason that we construct stories about uh, where that Sylvia-ness continues on to And I don't know which of those stories is true or not true, or if any of them, or if all of them. I have more of a sense of the whole story of a separate Sylvia being not true. So, uh, I think um, Stephen Levine wrote it really wonderfully in a book where he wrote, No One Dies, that there isn't anyone who owned this who won't afterwards. But it's a very hard concept. It's not one usually that people can get by thinking about. What happens is that there are moments where it becomes clear that there's nothing that happened, nothing that exists separately from all of conditions, including the sense of a separate self which arises according to conditions. Because of seeing, hearing, sensing, tasting, smelling, there is the sense of a separate self arising moment to moment, contingent on all those things, but not independent of them. Nothing is independent of anything. If you think about, we're all sitting here and alive. These bodies are alive because breath is going out of, in and out of them. I mean, we we tend to say, "I am breathing." In fact, these bodies are breathed. Nobody here in this whole course of the morning thought, okay, right, ready, set, go, I'm taking a breath in <laughs> and out. And now I'll take another breath in and out. Um, these bodies get breathed. We don't. There's no one has to take a breath. And they say, we are breathed. So you say, well, what breathes us? Well, the biosphere breathes us. But the biosphere doesn't breathe us alone. It breathes us in concert with um, this diaphragm and these lungs and this whole uh, ecological system of chemical change that keeps it going that operates on the fuel of uh, oxygen carbon dioxide exchange which is the same exchange that the trees do but they do it backwards they breathe in the carbon dioxide and give out the oxygen so there's a certain way in which we are we are all being breathed here because the trees are being breathed as well and the trees and we are giving each other artificial respiration as we sit here. And that's why we need trees on the planet and other green things. Otherwise, we can't keep each other alive. And so this whole appearance of a planet and people and things on it is kept alive by everything keeping itself alive and nothing independent of anything else. And then the question is whether that's, re- that's reassuring or scary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Someone told yesterday morning, I guess a, I guess it was Guy who was giving a talk, and he was talking about the awareness of non-separateness on the one hand, sometimes being freeing, but also being alarming. And uh, uh, It's just a, a shift in figure ground that happens from time to time. It's a shift in perception. It's definitely a perceivable event, happens to people. Ah uh-huh. uh, Joseph uh, J- guy was quoting Joseph as saying, it's like discovering that you have uh, jumped out of an airplane and uh, that you don't have a parachute and that you're falling free fall through experiences through one experience after another so, and there's a moment of terror until you look down and then you realize there's no ground. <laughs> so everybody thought. I don't know if that's good or not good. <laughs> but I think that, that somehow one of the factors to put into the question about what are we all doing here and what do we want? Do we want that experience of knowing that there's no one there? Will that diminish our sense of uniqueness? Is it, is it our own personal identity that we really want? Or do we want to feel connected? Um, or do we want to feel that there's no one who isn't connected? And that everything is connected. What did someone call it the other day? The uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, the implicate order of things. It's a not, it's a fancy uh, phys, uh, physics term for Indra's net, uh, just, just the combination of uh, connections that make up all of creation now some things arising others passing away indra's net would be the poetic and religious image way of saying it the ground of being would be uh, the paul tillich way to say it the implicate order of things would be the quantum physics way of saying it Uh, is that a help or not a help you know does that sustain us in moments of fear And if we really understand that there's no one separate, how is it that we have so much trouble with feeling ashamed or embarrassed? The biggest um, question that comes up in meditation retreats from people who come into interviews is, am I doing it right? Everyone is worried about doing it wrong, like there's some it to do, and that there's some they who could be doing it wrong. And so when you think about it, it's so sad for all of us. Not that I don't do it myself. Uh, am I looking good? Am I looking good? Or am I looking as good as I can? Or am I doing as well as I can? We set up an I, and then we set up hurdles for it to jump through. And uh, then we set up fictitious uh, um, evaluations of whether the jumping was good enough uh, we stir up a pot of an otherwise tranquil heart with nonsense. And, uh, you know, in a sense, I'm uh, um, sometimes, it's hard to say I'm more touched by that than anything else, you know, because we started with the image of the way in which the world, unaware of the ways in which people in the world, unaware confused about what what leads to happiness, respond to greed and hatred and delusion, all of which set up a sense of a personal I that then acting out of that place of personal I causes all the worldly extra pains that there are, in addition to being alive and alive, that lead to cruelties and wars and inappropriate sharing of stuff so all of that pain on the outside level but the pain on the inside level suppose someone offered you a drink of a of a, of a homeopathic remedy and they said if you took this remedy you would never have another moment of feeling ashamed in your whole life Would you take it who would take it i would take it in a second <laughs> or if you take this remedy you won't get angry you won't feel angry i take that Um. Hmm? i don't know if it does it that well howard (laughs) and then you think to yourself could i be a person or would that be like a lobotomy could i be a person if i didn't get angry um I think anger is a prolonged startle, you know. We could get startled and respond in a normal way. You have to continue it into a, into a story. Um, it's the continuing it into a story that causes us grief that's part of the mechanism of human minds and how to be good storytellers, because here we are and we have a narrative of our lives and we really attach to each other in ways that bring solace and joy and happiness and really a lot of gratifying things because we can talk to each other and tell each other stories, but how to tell each other true stories, not stories that make it worse, and how to tell ourselves true stories. I think that a lot. I think to myself, am I really telling myself the truth? I'm sure you do this as well. I scrutinize myself and my intention I often find fault with myself about, didn't do that well enough, wasn't careful enough, oh, I feel embarrassed about this. What if I could change that story to the really true story of, I'm always doing the best that I can. So are you, so are we all. Nobody purposely says, I'll mess up this moment right now, just like that. I feel like suffering about it. You know, nobody does that. (laughs) And it's a fundamental meta-premise. Wa- everyone wants to be happy. Nobody purposely makes decisions that cause suffering in their own mind and in other people's minds. What if we could just remember that? Every once in a while, uh, people come in, uh, this would be a good way to end, because I really have a lot of retreat thoughts on my mind, now having come to the end of this month. I didn't have this as my intention, but if I inspire some of you to do retreat practice, I'll be happy about that too, because uh, it gives enough time for this to happen, where people realize, uh, a lot of them, how much extra suffering we create in our own minds with the stories we tell ourselves which find fault with ourselves. We just would not have a best friend who walked around next to us all day long, next to our shoulder, and kept up a running commentary of what you could have done better. And uh, we wouldn't keep a person in our lives who said such demoralizing things to ourselves, but we say them all the time. And what happens when people live for a month in a really uh, supportive, safe environment is they stop telling themselves those bad stories, and they begin to feel content, and at ease, and light. And light about um, about their humanity, you know. Someone will come in and say, "You know, I uh, was looking around, and I suddenly had such a judgmental thought on somebody, on the way they looked, or the way they ate, or you know." There's not very much to think about up there, so it's just the way that people look, or walk, or eat or sit, or breathe. I mean, there's, there's really not too much to fault people about, but the mind in its habitual way just keeps grading. It grades us, didn't do that well, and it grades other people all the time. And somebody will come in and say, not I am suddenly free from all my judgments, because the mind just clicks away and does it. So, you know, I had an incredible judgment on somebody walked in yesterday. had such a non charitable thought on this person. And you know what? The thought was gone and I didn't give myself a bad time of it, you know? It's just like a Teflon mind, you know. You don't stop thinking, you know. Just have the thought and you don't have the judgment about it. Usually you have the thought that, oh, how could I have thought that thought, so not nice, so unspiritual. A whole month I've been here I should be really saintly by now. And like, saints don't have those kind of thoughts. I don't know what kind of thoughts saints have, but we are people, so, so, but, but, so that people will come in and tell me one or another permutation of that story, and they'll end by saying, you know, I just feel so light, you know, in 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 sense of, uh, it almost seems careless, you know, the 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 expression, the incredible lightness of being, just being, not making a fuss about it, just. It feels almost careless, almost, um, there's a kind of uh, insouciance about it, like whatever, but it's not careless. It's really, I think, um, a moment of freedom from the habitual bonds that keep us frightened and confused and huddled and not open and not available all the things I notice with my body—I'm making myself smaller and smaller, like a Jules 5 for drawing—and the incredible and the incredible lightness of being might be that you just sit up or stand up. There was years ago—I don't remember—30 years ago, I don't remember the name of the book, but it was a book on uh, transactional analysis. Anybody? Maybe someone will remember it. No, wasn't James People play? no it might but but I'll tell you what was on the cover (coughs) it wasn't games people play and it wasn't it was a child standing at the seashore naked looking out at the sea with her arms out like that and there's no way of knowing boy child or girl child although I'm sure it's a girl child (laughs) Uh, but she is standing like that facing the whole of the ocean and it's a great Photo. Um, I do It's not born free or free to be me. I'm no, it's not. I'm okay. You're okay. Born not the magical child. Born, the born not born free. <laughs> uh, but it could be any of those. Uh, but you know what it is. Yeah. But how about if we could? We can't because we can't do it by dint of will. We can't decide tomorrow getting up and entering the world this way. All my armor gone, trusting, knowing there's no one there who needs to be defended, there's nothing to be afraid of, that there's nothing separate from all that is. Tomorrow morning, ready, set, go, I'm doing it. You can't decide by dint of will, but you can have it occur to you when all the stories that, all the habits that make that view unavailable, make that unavailable to us Because that's really how we are. When all those habits stop operating for short or for long, that's, I think, what we feel. No one said it better than the incredible lightness of being. Born to win. win. (laughs) 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 Ellen. Ellen. (laughs) The ancient brain. (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) So born to win, that's it. But it's really born to win. And we are. And we could be. So I didn't know exactly where I was going when I started. I knew what I wanted to talk about. But maybe the urgency is to win in that particular way that we could. And it keeps us coming and it keeps us doing. I wish you every good thing for this whole of this month and uh, I'll uh, see you uh, four, five weeks from today at this time. And um, I wish you everything good until then. Let's sit for one minute and we'll ring the bell. The formal merit is, may the merit that we accrue from our being together and our intention to wake up and our sitting together and our study together and our practice together be a um, gift to the well-being of all beings in the world. And I thought about um, Ellen's remembering that the name of the book is Born to Win, So maybe another way to say that a very lovely and classical dedication of merit would be, uh, may the whole world become a win-win situation. Thank you very much. Thank you.